then you still have like the pre-show nerves. You ever yeah. get pre-show nerves? I get pre-show nerves quite a bit. If you don't get pre-show nerves, then you're not taking it. Right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, good. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit subscribe and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding cross streams with other channels, adding and even revamping in earlier this week, new and old shows. Also, this is a pre-recorded show. This is not live, so we will not sadly be interacting with the chat like we do so much. Not saying we won't re-watch the show and interact with you guys in the chat. This is not live. That said, MT, are you with me? I am with you. I am here. Uh, you know what time it is. Is it uh, New York merch time? Oh, it is New York merch time. Booty Barn New York merch time is what it sounds like. This is this is time for your sexy New York voice as you pitch TIR merch. I just woke up, sexy New York voice. You got your snapbacks over here. <laughs> they are snapping back. Uh, <laughs> that's that's about as sexy in New York as it gets. I had a friend from Brooklyn who says, "Here comes the truck driver," when she's about to speak. <laughs> so here comes the truck driver. We got uh we got hoodies. <laughs> we got hoodies. we got we got pullovers. You name it. We got Anglo pessimism that matches your Tim's. Pessimism. Holla. Oh my gosh. You're gonna get so many phone numbers in that shirt. You know it's we funny. got I'm mm. sure Doug Lane had no idea that we were going to be this silly beforehand. He got all serious <laughs> for today. 
and then we hit them with the silly. Thank you to all the patrons, YouTube, and Twitch subscribers. You guys are the oh-so-important cogs in the TR machine. If you'd like to be a part of what we do here, have access to the call-in segment, the other thing that we've revamped, um, and have access to all the prior, of course, present champagne rooms. There's only one way. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. It can all be yours. That's what she said. <laughs> that was the, that was the wrong drop, but it, it kind of worked. Okay. Well, let's bring in a very serious man. Um, I was making AI art all night, and I was making AI art of Pascal. And I wish I would have saved some and put it up on the screen because there were some pretty awesome AI Pascal pictures. Please welcome the man of the Mount Mount Hour, the Pascal Robert. Oops. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles, because there is no time. I gotta get out. I'm in the wrong. I'm in the champagne room sound bank, which is the inappropriate language sound bank. Don't do it. Yeah, I'm. I'm back. I'm back. I. I always get. And, also. And. Mm-hmm. The, the the right hand, woman keeps the show going with insight level-headedness the headless faceless voice of reason m2 song hello hello everyone i didn't have an intro the other day and we had some new viewers who were very confused so i will insist each time now on an intro is that when someone said the show got sexist people do consider it sexist that my face is not on the screen and they're also like who's that woman's voice who's that woman they don't know you're just an ai that we created it's true i was created to keep jason company (laughs) i gotta watch my sips as you're talking Recently, in the midterm elections here in the United States, political pundits from a bipartisan perspective told the American people that this election was of dire importance. The state of the nation was at stake. Democratic operatives informed us that a neo-fascist takeover was coming. Uh, Just look at what they're doing to women in marginalized communities. The right wing feared uh, their voting base with communist groomers and a continued destruction of the traditional nuclear family this isn't a new phenomenon and we tend to hear the same rhetoric every election cycle a cycle filled with warring talking heads on the tv or the internet podcast sphere offering up different strategies within the system to make said system more just for all but what is offered tends to do nothing more than further the decline in a sense of anime or normalness a state of confusion and chaos in which people do not know how to act. The failure of institutions seems to be seen from a bipartisan lens as well, but the conversations, if any, attempt to fix these institutions uh, always seem to result in working within them. News punditry becomes a spectacle more akin to pro wrestling than informing the demos. From the book Society of the Spectacle, 
The society that bears the spectacle does not dominate underdeveloped regions solely by its economic hegemony. It also dominates them as the society of the spectacle. Even where the material base is still absent, modern society has already used the spectacle to invade the social surface of every continent. It sets the stage for the formation of indigenous ruling classes and flames the agendas. Just as it presents pseudo-goods to be coveted, it offers false models of revolution to local revolutionaries. The bureaucratic regimes in power in certain industrialized countries have their own particular type of spectacle, but it is an integral part of the total spectacle, serving as its pseudo-opposition and actual support. Even if local manifestations of the spectacle include certain totalitarian specialization of social communication and control from the standpoint of the overall function of the system, those specializations are simply playing their allotted role within a global division of spectacular tasks. One man that's been studying this book quite a bit and has been an influence on even my work on the idea of the spectacle is Doug Lane. Please welcome the man managing editor of Sublation. Is that what we call Doug? The CEO of Sublation. The man. He's shaking his head. <laughs> Please welcome Doug Lane. Hello. I'm good. I'm, the crowd goes wild. Mm -hmm. we call you, Doug. Are you the, what did I say, head? Just CEO. Um, people don't call me the CEO. I just, I call myself that all the time, but no one refers to me that way. Um, I don't know. Technically, I am the CEO of a company called Sublation Media, but my role is like head YouTuber, um, <laughs> editor, <laughs> publishing manager. I like CEO way better than head YouTuber. Yeah, I mean, like I just do like, if it, something needs to be done, it generally falls to me ultimately to get it done. There are some things that I can't do, but most of the things uh, that have to happen, I oversee. Um, I like we're SEO. SEO, what's what's the S stand for in SEO? You're the search engine optimization. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> right. <Sublation Media. laughs> I am not an, the SEO, um, although I am the SEO guru, I suppose. Uh, but the one that doesn't remember what SEO stands for. So, but but Doug, we didn't get you on here to talk about your fancy title. Well, okay. Pascal, I know you said you uh, you have some questions for Doug Lane. Absolutely, I do have some questions for Doug Lane. I, I am uh, I watched some of your video montages on Society of the Spectacle. I also talked to one. There's the one you were talking about the that film that was on Netflix. What was that film that lefty film that was on Netflix that you were talking about? Uh, Don't look up. Don't look up. Don't look up. Right, and you were mentioning that. My main question is that is spectacle a tool? of the capitalist ruling class, or is it actually an objective of the ruling class in and of itself to create spectacle? Is it simply a tool, or is it actually part of the fundamental goal of the capitalist ruling class? Well, um, you know, I'm gonna say that there's a question of that you're asking in terms of like, what is true, right? Uh, and what, what do I believe is true? 
And then there's the other question, which I think is probably where we should start, which is what did Gita Board, who wrote the Society of Spectacle um, and formulated the, you know, the theory behind the term, um, believe? And uh, De Boer believed that not only was the spectacle a tool of the capitalist class, um, not only was it the aim of the capitalist class to create the sense of spectacle, but in fact, the spectacle was the organizing force um, of society and its and its essence. Um, so uh, he wrote that when modern uh, industrial production prevails, society uh, presents itself as a mass accumulation of spectacles, as as opposed to what Marx wrote, which was as a mass accumulation of commodities. Um, he was writing after World War II. Uh, he was writing uh, after the rise of the welfare state and of state capitalism across the globe in many different forms. Um, the the by 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 and large the consensus amongst socialists at that time, amongst Marxists at the time, was that as the state uh, integrated itself with the capital with in with industry um the the difficulties that are were seen to be endemic to the capitalist mode of production um in the 19th century were had been overcome and so things like uh, competition between private capitalists were no longer definitive and, and and the the production of capital the reproduction of that form of of life could be sustained indefinitely um, and that what was holding back a working class uh, revolt, insurrection, um, was uh, primarily ideological or psychological at times, they, they would say. So um, for De Boer, the, the, the rise of the spectacle indicated a major transformation in the character of society. And uh, it was a change to the very essence of uh, modernity or, or, or capitalist society. Um, and from his point of view, I believe, I believe that that was a mistake. Um, that uh, the, by the seventies and the, the the rise of neoliberalism, we could see socialists should have been able to recognize that the the fundamental character of capitalism hadn't really changed from where, where, what it was like in the 19th century. But does that fundamental change include the... So in other words, what you're saying is that is the spectacle a tool of disciplining the masses or is the spectacle an actual part of the means of production in its of itself and part of the profit motive? Or is it a tool of discipline to maintain atomization of the masses so they don't revolt? Um, well, it, it, it's, it's definitely, okay, that it definitely, the spectacle is what held back the masses, kept, kept them within a zeitgeist, kept, kept, uh, altered their fundamental psyches so that they would be passive spectators of a world which was alienated from them. That's what the spectacle aimed to do. That's what it was, was that form of alienation, according to DeBoer. Um, <clears throat> then the, the, um, 
what was the other the first two parts again of your question because um the the, the you, you were asking kind of is the spectacle a, a new form of production right a new material yes, is it actually right? like a, a part of the means of production in and of itself yeah i believe that they that DeBoer believed that it that it was um that it uh he in in the book society spectacle he kind of fluctuates a bit he'll, he'll talk about how the decisions that are seen that appear in the spectacle um and in the market <clears throat> have already been made in the realm of production but he doesn't explore um marx's particular political economy or 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 come up with his own theory of production um in in the book he doesn't stipulate like how these images or the mass media um actually facilitates a kind of production and sets up exchange or distribution um so uh he kind of has it both ways the capitalism as marx understood it is still operative but um because of the integration with the state um the spectacle is more significant than capitalist production because i think from de Boer's point of view without private capitalists competing um the contradictions within capitalism and especially the crises that would take the form of economic crisis wouldn't arise so he didn't see um that you know the, the he didn't pulled with the immiseration thesis say that eventually the working class would be so immiserated they but they would have no choice but to revolt um he didn't see that as as in the future and i am not i don't really hold with that thesis either but um but to kind of keep it uh simple um he he believed that capitalism in, in a sense had been overcome through the state and that could be the bolshevik state because that's the other thing you got to remember about the board was he was an anti-bolshevik that could have been the mm. he he equated the soviet union um with you know fdr's america it was not he did not see bolshevism or the soviet uh system as socialist or as an alternative to the spectacle there were different kinds of spectacle in the world there was the diffuse and the concentrated the diffuse spectacle was in the united states that was where it seemed to be broken up there are lots of different centers it wasn't revolving around one central character and then there was a concentrated spectacle in stalinist uh, russia where the the uh, images and the ideologies would be were being produced from a central location um from in, in a concentrated form around a personality and that was the bullshit that was what he how he would characterize the soviet union <clears throat> Did you want to i was going to see if mt wanted to add something i'm vibing man sorry <laughs> <laughs> i'm so used to hearing doug's voice just explain things that I, i'm just vibing yeah well i this is something i feel somewhat confident trying to explain um the I, I would i would say that the one question that is fascinating to me personally is why did this anti-bolshevik marxist gita Bohr, become so significant for me personally in the 90s and i think in the counterculture um in the 80s and 90s like what was it about the situations to international and Gita Board's theory of the spectacle that um, was attractive. 
that people wanted to pick up. Do you, do you think do you think it's the fact that, you know, you we're all around the same age. Do you think it's that time of the of the 80s and 90s being so kind of anti-political and the one thing that you see that becomes quote unquote counterculture might be the counter to consumerism. Did that get you into the board? Yeah, <clears throat> for sure. I think that that um, the way in which the culture in the 80s and 90s uh, was appeared to be like monolithic, hegemonic, mm -hmm. concentrated within like a few major networks and a few major newspapers um, was seen as oppressive. And um, if you were wanting to think for yourself and be independent, um, the idea that you were living in a spectacle that you needed to, to get beyond would be appealing. Um, and it kept everything on the level of ideology. And it also coincided with a moment where, <clears throat> looking back, we can see that that that, that idea of a, of a central monolithic uh, mainstream culture was already, uh, you know, suspect. It was already kind of dissolving because mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the, the Internet was was coming. Uh, cable television had produced 100 channels instead of just the, the three. Um, the I was going to democratize information, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, and right. it's interesting that you bring this up because I want to ask, you know, basically everyone on the screen, including MT, that moment, which was supposed to be this moment where much like we hear about things like crypto now, you know, this is going to disrupt the banking system. Cable news, I, was, I had a conversation with Adolph Reed and he said he was in an early meeting where a bunch of these cable providers were meeting with like leftists in the 70s <laughs> mm -hmm. to try to get them on how cable news was going to be this disruptor and democratize the way we get information. And like you said, that didn't happen because ultimately a handful of channels ended up owning everything. Viacom owned everything mm -hmm. under different names. Um, and even in this age of the internet and inexpensive production tools, and when I say production tools, I mean the ability to make a film. You figure in the 70s, even in the 80s, an independent film might cost you $100,000. And that's kind of unheard of even back then. And now... You can buy yourself a, a nice camera, even a drone, lights. So an independent film can be something that costs a few thousand dollars. A lot easier to make. Um, the internet allows you to release things whenever you want to. But mm -hmm. ultimately, the eyes are still controlled by a small handful of companies. Do you guys feel anything's really changed? Or is it just the way we... Do we believe things have changed or is this not much different than the way they were before? Like you said, a handful of companies controlling television, cable news comes in, gives you 100 stations, but it's still the same three companies. Here we have the Internet. Everything is wide open. But, you know, us doing a show out here can be a fart in a wind compared to what eyeballs major corporations get. So has anything really changed? I think things have changed, but in a cyclical way. I mean, one thing that you're you um, are talking about now is that you're talking about how cheap um, media production has become, right? And mm -hmm. in the '90s, um, there was the zine revolution, right? Mm -hmm. So anybody could become a publisher. Mm -hmm. You just go down to Kinkos, and you know maybe you mm -hmm. you you 
skate out of there with more copies than you pay for and you and you distribute your little underground zine mm -hmm. and it can have pretty uh high production values because we have desktop publishing software that anybody can use and um it, it revolutionized uh, publishing and decentralized publishing but the zine revolution didn't lead to um even a hundred uh major main like mainstream or general interest uh magazines being produced uh in competition with each other they it, it created a boutique industry of of small zines and a lot of people making things that um they just gave away for free and mm -hmm. and um from that a few people rose up and created careers for themselves within publishing um but not um i guess i would be one of them in a way now it took me a long time because <laughs> I, I had a zine in the 90s called diet soap and it became a podcast and so forth um but uh, i think uh, you know i'm not really thinking of that small scale su success but the point is that the competition still existed and monopolization continued in publishing um and it continues now on the internet um it just in a completely different form um but but to, to go back to the, the situationist and the spectacle the idea was that if you could create situations um and and deter the mainstream of 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 the culture in other words take spectacular images spectacular messages spectacular art forms and transform them into revolutionary art forms and and images and, and publications um by not not just writing something new that would be revolutionary but transforming what was being produced by the spectacle um you could create a situation where uh there would be from below a, a rising up and maybe the and ultimately he was a council communist so the development of workers councils self-directed um activity and production and certainly <clears throat> self-directed media production and um but the last thing if you were a situationist in france in let's say the 50s and 60s which is when they arose that you could stomach would be the successful achievement of a mainstream art artist's career you know the careerists the art the were thrown out of the situationist international again and again until finally there was only Guy Debord left. But uh, anyhow. Pascal? Uh, for me, I think that we definitely are in a different time in that the degree of atomization or the degree of alienation mm -hmm. caused by digital technology, the internet, uh, social media, is a little bit different than it was in the 80s or 90s. I think that there was still a little bit more of a sense of the potential for interaction and community in at least the 80s up until the early 90s. But I think that what happens, particularly with social media and the cell phone, more so than anything else, is that it drives a certain alienation in that everyone is stuck in their own individual reality, and it makes the capacity of community even more difficult to achieve. Yeah. Go ahead. So I, some, I have so I have a response to that. Can I? Yeah, please, can, please. I've please. just been reading the Grindrees. I'm going to be teaching a workshop um, to the to my patrons. Uh, I'm not teaching it is really the wrong word. I'm going to be participating in a study group 
uh, really, uh, around the Grindrish. But um, one of the uh, defining characteristics of capitalism itself in the Grindrish is the way that it destroys community, traditional community, connections between people um, as individuals, as particular people, and the way that it strips away your individuality, your, your, your particularity, and um, instead turns you into a greedy little abstract individual <clears throat> seeking money. That's, um, that is the consequence of the creation of capitalist uh, relations. And in the Grindrice, what's really interesting is that it is, uh, Marx sees that as having a dual character. On the one hand, it is um, uh, a, a loss. It's a loss of connection. It's a loss of true sociality. But on the other hand, um, it is a, a liberation. It is a way to become uh, free of traditional forms of life, free to be truly industrious, uh, free to um, be independent in and of yourself, as opposed to being enmeshed in some particular role in a small provincial community. So, um, but it's not just like the media, it's the, for Marx, it's the money form um, that produces these alienated, greedy individuals. Fascinating. So even the means, of the, the actual means of monetary exchange helps facilitate the alienation in and of itself. Yeah, under capitalism, like under, like monetary exchange predates capitalism but um, a society which is aimed at, uh, ex you know, circulation through exchange uh, for the, you know, basic subsistence is what kind of is one of the things that defines capitalism. And when that emerges, when you have to um, seek money to meet your most basic needs um, and money is the ultimate expression of wealth, much more than any particular kind of wealth, like, you, you know, you might have. Uh, uh, warehouses full of carrots and be wealthy in carrots, but it'd be much better to be wealthy in money because then you can have anything, right? Um, so when that becomes the case, um, then you have a stripping away of traditional identities, um, wealth as defined in a particular way, like you'd be wealthy based on your uh, trade or your community, Um but instead you become kind of this abstract greedy little individual who wants to produce just for the sake of getting gold or silver in order to have the power to get whatever you need from the general totality of, 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 of capital, of capital production. I wanted to ask you a question as well, because I know that you're a big fan of public culture, film and uh, the culture industry overall. But one of the main questions I wanted to inquire of you is that, what is the role of the culture industry in creating the spectacle? And could we even have the spectacle truly without the, the role of the culture industry in creating that? Is, that? is it a necessary element in creating spectacle within a capitalist society? I, absolutely it is. And I, I think um, while Gita Bohr wanted to be perceived as, uh, you know, completely... Uh, his own man, independent, um, uh, thinking uh, in new ways. Uh, the correlation between 
his theory of the spectacle and DeBoard's, I'm sorry, and Adorno's uh, talk about the culture industry is pretty pronounced. And I mean, I think in some ways DeBoer takes the culture industry premise further, essentially saying that it, the production of, of culture had replaced the production of commodities in modern spectacular society. But there's a lot of correlation between uh, the ideas of the Frankfurt School and and the board's ideas. And it's absolutely the case that without the the industrialization and professionalization and centralization of the media uh, and the production of culture as a form of capitalist production, you would not have the spectacle that that is the, the spectacle would not be would have no basis in reality without the culture industry. How does the spectacle affect us politically? It makes us passive consumers of a world outside of ourselves that where we think that what's going to happen in the future is basically already happened. And mm -hmm. you, you don't uh, where you you don't um, have any sense of political agency or historical agency as an individual but merely relate to the world as a uh, as a something to to watch and mm -hmm. and perhaps to consume mm -hmm. um, that's that's what DeBoard would say he starts I mean I I started rereading DeBoard and started at the back right. of the book yeah. and read it to and then started reading the chapters in reverse order um, but by the end of the book you know he's describing not what uh, the spectacle does to us politically that's mm -hmm. in the middle he mm -hmm. says you know he's describing what it does to us psychologically or as or as people what does it do to our nature and he describes a, a kind of spectacular subject you know a, a passive consumer as near catatonic um you know the difference between uh the perfect citizen in a spectacular world and uh, a completely dysfunctional mental patient in a ward mm -hmm. is minimal at the end of society spectacle and yet there's a still this sense that that can't be maintained and that human free that the desire for human freedom will overturn the conditions even within our own psyche but isn't that kind of what the spectacle allows us to have a certain personal freedom if you will that disconnects us from the the whole so i can see you know, you live in Portland where it's, I was just there and the downtown area looks drastically different than it looked. When were you in Portland, Jason? And why didn't you call Kuba's, me up? Kuba's wedding. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, right, right. So we, yeah, you were just in Portland for a minute. Yeah, that's, that's, that's to you. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah, I was in Portland. That was okay. Never mind. Never yeah, mind. Yeah, never, back. Yeah. Rewind. You get two of those. You get two of those. That's why I was in Portland. God damn it. Uh, I wouldn't yeah, But we saw each no other reason. in Canada. We saw each other in Canada. Anyway, yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. We, walking around Portland, Pascal, is like a scene from Get Out. Oh, wow. Um, but you know, you, you, there's human suffering everywhere and we have the freedom to kind of not really be affected by it personally. Uh, well, oh, well, oh. right. Yeah. Did I, did I cut out? 
Uh, I, I hear you. I hear you. Sorry. Okay. Um, right. Well, that's right. It alienation from one another, the mm -hmm. lack of empathy is certainly um, an aspect of what it means to be a citizen within a spectacular society and the trading of um, our real need to be uh, free to shape our own destiny, which means collectively as well as individually work to, to change what the future will be. Um, uh, the, the trading that away for, you know, vacation packages and, uh, record albums and identification with movie stars and <laughs> all of that, um, is, is what the, the board is cr critiquing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but, but it's worth noting that his critique keeps going. I mean, that's not the end of the road for what the spectacle does to us. It, it does do. Uh, tremendous damage to us. I mean, and I think that maybe some of what, I mean, like I'm very critical of the economic political foundation of the board slot, but as a description of what it's like um, to, to live uh, in a very media oriented society, mm -hmm. um, it does resonate, you know, that's the other reason why it was so popular in the eighties and nineties is because you know, along with a uh, hundred channels on cable that came eight hours a day sitting in front of the TV. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but yeah, as it, I feel like the society spectacle is description of the kind of feeling of being, especially maybe a younger person in this society. Um, uh, it has a lot of resonance. In do, do you think it, it, it lines up with Durkheim's uh, anime? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I. Uh, but you know what? To, to tell me, remind me, because I've read about that, but it's been years. What? How does anime means alienation from society and the feeling of powerlessness in, yeah. in society, right? Yeah, and 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 so kind of like bad actions become normalized, right? Right. Yeah. Ruthlessness, um, normalnessness. Mm -hmm. Pascal, yeah. you know a little bit about that. No, I'm not as, as much of an expert on Durkheim as you are, brother. I, whoa, slow, slow down. First of all, <laughs> everyone, take, take a take a still, you know, take a screenshot it's, of this the, moment. The, the thing is intriguing to me is like it's more so as societies decline, and I think what the for me personally, what the spectacle adds, and this is kind of what I'm working on with the with the kayfabe piece. Um, as societies decline, the the spectacle becomes oh oh so important, um, and we are extremely atomized and disconnected. And even when we look at protest, for me, a lot of protest is just spectacle, and that's the way it's been sold to the masses, especially young people. It's just shutting down a freeway throwing a can of soup, burning down a police station. These systems aren't affected by, this is going to sound bad, by your tantrum. Ouch. Eyeballs get on it. People get involved. But there's a huge release after you've smashed the window and shouted and marched. And, and it's not all 
protest, right? There actually are some movements that are actually starting, you know, actually make some substantive change. But if we think about 2020, which is something we talk about here on the show quite a bit, what happened after all of that destruction? I'm asking the question. I'm, I'm not. I'm, Joe I'm really, Biden got elected. You said Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I I remember the you know of course I do. Everyone remembers the the summer of the of the George Floyd protests and, and Portland is still devastated from it. Yeah, and um, I re recall the photo ops that Biden took walking amongst the people with the Black Lives Matter banners in the background shaking people's hands and i thought at the time i said if no alternative political vision emerges from these protests this will be nothing more than part of the biden campaign um and that is what happened it, nothing emerged from it i mean not for lack of trying there were lots of young people especially who spent hours and hours in meetings organizing Prote organizing protests, organizing, all reading, trying to think up a hundred different things that they could do to create a political movement out of that moment. But they were, they had, I think people like me and, and boomers had not left them anything much to work with and they had to try to invent it all again. And they usually were around universities, mm -hmm. um, the people who were doing this. And so they were picking up sort of in this piecemeal fashion some of the worst ideas of the new left uh, mm. as that happens so like oh let's maybe we could get some communal land and we could all move off into the forest or that's what you know in in oregon people were saying yeah i mean we had that was it the chad what was it called in seattle chad yeah. yeah there were these kind of temporary spaces um it did feel very 60s-esque. It did feel very, let's get some land that Universal's selling off because they're hemorrhaging money. It felt very 90s <laughs> to me. Know. I remember the book about temporary autonomous zones coming out maybe in the late 80s or early 90s where that was a big, it, it, there was a like a return, a brief return to anarchism. Mm -hmm. People yes. thought about the coming insurrection again, mm -hmm. which was a book from 2007. Um, and it wasn't just you know, like, you know, anarchism in America seems particularly white, but it wasn't just white people who were turned into this anarchist moment. It was all sorts of people um, because that's what was on hand, especially in all uh, in uh, opposition to the social democratic electoral project, which had just failed, which had just fallen apart. Um, uh, so. I mean, we only have Doug for a few more minutes. I mean, Pascal uh, and MT, how do you feel about that? I think that Doug said something that was very, very important, that all of this, quote unquote, radical insurrectional energy got channeled into electing Joe Biden. And not only that, it got channeled into it, the imagery was appropriated by the Democratic Party. They used it at the convention and they used it to elect you know, a left flank of capital president. What does that say about the capacity and potentiality of insurrection in American society? Is that a consequence of the bourgeoisification of 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 uh, radical posturing, foundation influence, 
the fact that some of these all these these movements were headed by people that were within the uh, overall coterie of some of these foundations. How does this happen that the um, the, the 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 liberal capitalist party is able to appropriate all of this supposedly supposedly radical energy for election purposes? I think it's a pretty strong condemnation of uh, those who uh, found those particular moments to be so so revolutionary. I want to say one. I got to go, but yeah. I want to say one thing, which mm-hmm. is that um, the the way that the Society of Spectacle and Gita Board were were taken up in the mm-hmm. in the nineties in particular was through anarchism through American anarchism. It was not Marxist groups that were reading Society Spectacle. It Agreed. was primitivist anarchists, lifestyle anarchists, maybe some uh, uh, anarcho-syndicalists. Um, and when people return to the board today, what I tried to do as I returned to him today was think of him as a Marxist first and, and in his historical moment in relation to other Marxist movements and and in relation to the historical struggles that had gone on, including uh, what had happened in uh, Hungary um, and uh, and uh, Germany and um, Poland, um, right in the fifties, right around the time that the anti-Bolshevik turn rose up. That you have to uh, not take um, the the board up at the on the level of a vibe, but um, you know, and through the understanding his critique in history um and seeing it as a continuation of the struggle for for socialism at, through a marxist tradition because that's really what it was and then you can critique debor um hopefully more productively than the way in which we celebrated him in the 90s uh worked out <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Doug. I know you're busy teaching a class about something. That's I'm smart. joining us, the Grindris, the study group, which we're going to run on Zoom in about seven minutes. So I okay, go. Doug, I'll let you go. Thank you very much. Doug Lane, CEO of Sublation Media. Thank you for hanging out with us. Um, this is a conversation that we definitely could have uh, for much longer. MT, I'm sure you have something you'd like to add. Uh, I was wondering if anyone saw anything positive in the spe- uh, in the spectacle. There are activist groups that are trying to have a spectacle, to have mm-hmm. a moment, to get some attention, um, and it's not just the you know throwing soup on the painting. It's it's not just PETA throwing red paint on people and fur. It's it's other groups trying to get some some attention. Um, so I just wondered if there was anything you all saw that was good about spectacle. I don't think those people are sitting around trying to make a huge spectacle. I think when you're really doing work, you're so busy really doing work. Um, Mm -hmm. you don't really have time for that level of press. Mm -hmm. You have to raise awareness, Jason. You know, MT has a very strong point because there is, I don't think, I mean, there is an element of spectacle to protest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is an element of spectacle to demonstrative oppositional politics. Because as, as MT said quite 
eloquently, consciousness raising has to occur. And how mm -hmm. does consciousness raising occur without a visual stimulant to entice those who have not had their consciousness raised to say, oh, this is what's happening? I mean, there's a great interview with Huey Newton towards the end that he does for a series that every black person my age has watched called Eyes on the Prize. <laughs> and you can see his whole interview. I believe a lot of it was deleted, if if any was even shown in the, in the I don't really remember because they had a couple of Eyes on the Prizes. And I took part of his whole interview for the Huey Newton uh, video essay that we have. And in it, he, he says, he's like, you know, we were over the leather jackets and the, and the berets relatively quickly. There were other things that we were doing politically. Um, and it gets overshadowed. I think people know a little bit about the clinics. I think people know about the free breakfast programs, but I don't really hear people talk about, you know, Bobby Seale getting involved in, in local politics. Mm-hmm. You know, not too many people talk about them trying to have real political power in in the city of Oakland. And you know, I don't know how many other cities they're actually running candidates. So I do think that the spectacle obfuscates the actual vision. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah kind of gives us the same messiah narrative that we really don't need in 2022 and moving forward into 2023 and these things get stuck in in that narrative that there were these messiahs that came along and they disrupted the system um I don't I don't know how much the system was truly disrupted. Mm. Um, there's a quote that Pascal Robert said when he first came on this show, and that is black power succeeded uh, uh, culturally where it failed politically. And I've watched more than enough documentaries on the black exploitation era making the most recent video essay on black exploitation films and there is one line that is echoed through the majority of people especially ones that were involved in these movements and that was we won the culture war mm. that's the point of pride mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. Lots of pride. This project succeeded culturally. I believe Tupac's mom, uh, Afini Shakur. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember the, the name of the documentary. And I don't remember if it was a BBC one or not. Again, I watched a lot. She literally says that. She goes, we didn't win politically. But we won culturally. Pyrrhic victory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, that was a downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's 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 why it's when you talk about consciousness raising, when you think about the political moment that we're in, where both parties are admitting that there's a failure of institutions, 
And instead of discussions about how to make said institutions better or maybe even a new economic system or even just a little bit of social democracy, we just always devolve into name calling. And it's just it looks like pro wrestling. That's all it looks like to me. The political moment that we're in, including the podcast sphere, it just looks like pro wrestling. How do you get beyond that spectacle? Because there's advantages to that level of engagement. Right? Mm -hmm. How do you break through that? And that's, I don't know, that's... Is it the change that breaks through that? An actual disruption? Those are still subsumed, but if you can get an actual one. And I don't know what that looks like. I mean, the movie that you talked about, Don't Look Up, really is a mirror for America. And people looked in it and just checked their hair and kept moving. That's very true. And it's not like people slept on it. It got nominated for an Oscar, I believe, right? Didn't? Uh... Yes. It did very well. So. It's what? Sorry, I don't have a <laughs> cheery note to, to, to end on. Maybe Pascal can end us on a cheery note. No, come on, man. Really? <laughs> I, have a, I, <laughs> I have a cheery note. All right. There may be only a handful of companies producing your media, your movies, your cable channels, but you still have 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins. <laughs> and there are still 36 chambers. Okay. We still have that. Yep. You know, but let's get let's get serious for a moment. We've actually had some people on this show that are actually doing real work. Right. Yes. And and before I if we end on a doom and gloom note, um, we had Tanya on this show, who's actually giving food to people in urban areas with urban gardens. Uh, Dylan was on the show talking about the protests for the uh, student teachers. faculty, the teachers, mm -hmm. and the UC system, yes. which is one of the biggest uh, protests we have going on in this country. Um, we've covered the railway strikes. Um. We had uh, the Teamster union rep and Paul Prescott on to talk about that. There seems to be a moment where labor is starting to rise up. Um, so it's not all doom and gloom. Right? I agree with that. Chris Moss is the illest. Chris Moss. <laughs> 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 not to create so, a messiah but but it's it's i don't know maybe it's not all doom and gloom it can't be it never is never is i think that the contradictions pre present opportunities mm, see i told you you can end on a half look there you go oh no it's happy just like that pascal's ball rainbows all there you go. rainbows if you, want, this guy. if you guys want to see some rainbows in real life bam January 22nd in New York, New York. Give them a revolution live show. Me, Ben Burgess, Matt Leck, David Griscom, 
TIR crew, a host of others. We're going to start planning out this live show sooner than later as one of my live show co-hosts will be joining me for brunch that I'm making. So on that note, are you ready to, to bounce out of here, MT? Yeah, let's bounce. Booty Thank back to the booty much. barn. <laughs> Thank you very much, Doug Lane. Pascal Robert. Anything you guys have to say, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of comments on this show. I'm sure people are going to be very opinionated about this. Leave them in the comments. Pascal's going to respond to everyone.